uh, continuing our series in Job, and we're picking up in uh, the end of 38, so it's a bit before halfway, page 532, and this is where the Lord speaks to Job. Do you hunt the prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of the lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in the wait in a thicket? Who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God and wander and wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? Do you count the months till they bear? Do you know the time they give birth? They crouch down and bring forth their young. Their labour pains are ended. Their young thrive and grow strong in the wilds. They leave and do not return. Who let the wild donkey go free? Who untied its ropes? I gave it the wasteland as its home, the salt flats as its habitat. It laughs at the commotion in the town. It does not hear a driver's shout. It ranges the hills for its pasture and searches for any green thing. Will the, will the wild ox consent to serve you? Will it stay by your manger at night? Can you hold it to the furrow with a harness? Will it till the valleys behind you? Will you rely on it for its great strength? Will you leave your heavy work to it? Can you trust it to haul in your grain and bring it to your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, though they cannot compare with the wings and feathers of the stork. She lays her eggs on the ground and lets them warm in the sand, unmindful that a foot may crush them, that some wild animal may trample them. She treats her young harshly as if they were not hers. She cares not that her labour was in vain, for God did not endow her with wisdom or give her a share of good sense. Yet when she spreads her feathers to run, she laughs at horse and rider. Thank you, Ben. And uh, g'day again, everyone. So it really is good to be here together, and I hope you're not feeling too kind of cold. I'm going to pray, and uh, we're going to get straight down to the business of the Lord. So uh, join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness to us, and uh, thank you especially for your goodness in speaking. And we recognize that as an extraordinary uh, opportunity that we want to make the most of now, that we might hear you and become more like your son as a result. Amen. I want to start by asking you a question. I wonder if you are bored with God. Maybe you think you've heard all there is to hear, and frankly, it's just not enough anymore. You're bored. Perhaps you think he's bored with you. He's just too far away to really care about all the ins and outs, the minutiae of your life. And so if he's bored with you, you think, well, you know, I might as well be bored with him back. Either way, you're bored with God. I reckon you can uh, pretty much predict what people who are bored with God end up doing. They sort of fill their lives with playthings or pleasures or perhaps bury themselves in family and work so they don't have to give attention to the spiritual side of life at least not to any degree to when it starts to cost them something so uh, for example you'll see folks out on the golf course on a Sunday morning or folks um, out running down the front here or um, maybe having breakfast at the cafe even though there's a surcharge on Sundays uh, or maybe at nippers or whatever it is uh, maybe people just sleep in because the demands of the week, uh, their busy week, leave them so tired. Sunday's the only day where they can really catch up on rest. I mean, I'm preaching for converted, right? Because you guys are here on Sunday morning. But, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with golf, really, 
or running or breakfast or nippers or sleeping in, although I'm not crazy about Sunday surcharges. But my simple point is this. When you get bored with God, you tend to get busy instead. Now, I think if you're bored with God, a much better alternative is to create your own religion. That's what I think. And uh, that's what Sun Myung Moon of Korea did. I've got a picture of him here. <laughs> I just love it when religious people get dressed up. It cracks me up. Anyway, Sun Myung Moon, his uh, family were Christian, Presbyterians in fact. But at age 16, he claims to have seen a vision of Jesus. In this vision, Jesus told him to carry out the task that Jesus himself had failed to complete. Because apparently dying on the cross to save us from our sins was not a part of the plan. And naturally, he was the only guy who could do it. So he pronounced himself the new Messiah and he began the Unification Church, which is nicknamed the Moonies. He's banned in Britain, but has made billions of dollars dollars from his followers. And so I think if you're bored with God, don't go to nippers, like invent your own religion. It just pays a whole lot better. But actually, to, you know, to be serious, don't invent your own religion. There's no tax breaks. Uh, if you are bored with God, I wonder if the truth is it's because you don't know him well enough. Uh, you think you've worked him out, uh, kind of contained him in your mind, sort of got him in a box like this. A very kind of flat, two-dimensional vision of God. That, that's actually part of the reason why it's worth us reading our Old Testaments. They just expand our view of God. and We get to know him better. Uh, and we realize that we cannot and should not and just can't contain him in a box. And so far in the book of Job, we've done just that. It has expanded our view of God. Uh, If you haven't had the chance to be with us over the holiday period, here's a brief recap of the story. The first two chapters, we're sitting almost uh, above the heavenlies. Uh, We see God accept a wager with Satan in which Job's integrity and faithfulness to God is tested by severe and bruising suffering. Then we've dipped into kind of rounds and rounds of anguishing conversations between Job and his three mates as he sits in the dust in his misery. And it's as if we're sitting in the dust right there next to him, eavesdropping in on those conversations. Uh, Then God addresses Job overwhelmingly from a storm or a hurricane before the very last chapter of the book, God and Job, that all the loose ends are kind of tied together. That's the broad outline of the story. And so far we've seen firstly that God doesn't govern the world with an overly simplistic system of justice and punishment. If you sin, you may not get smacked down straight away. And if you're righteous, you may not get blessed immediately. You might suffer, in fact. Uh, Job shows us that God doesn't work kind of mechanically like that. Bad things can happen to good people. We've also seen that God controls the evil in the world, which is not to say that uh, humans don't have genuine choices and sometimes make bad or evil choices. It's just to say that uh, evil is not outside his control. Uh, Though he controls evil, we've seen that it's not always in the way that we expect or even ways that we can understand and articulate. But today we're going to add to our understanding more of what this ancient, epic, dramatic book says about God. And I think get to know him better and you don't get bored of him. Now, uh, firstly for today, one of the main ways that it is possible to get bored with God is finding him predictable. We think God is predictable. Now, uh, when I hear the word predictable, uh, nothing comes to mind more than romantic comedies. I think they're utterly predictable, don't you? Always the same. One hour and 37 minutes duration. It used to be um, kind of Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan or Julia Roberts and uh, Richard Gere. 
Now it's um, Matthew McConaughey and a blonde actress. Sometimes it's just Matthew McConaughey and Matthew McConaughey. (laughs) Because he's so good looking, right? (laughs) But you know how the story works. Boy meets girl. Uh, At first there's no attraction. And in fact, they might even despise each other. But eventually, after 53 minutes have passed, boy and girl are in love. Then something threatens that love. Is it a reckless comment from the girl? Uh, Maybe it's something in the past. Maybe boy takes undue interest in girl's best friend or sister or something like that. But it doesn't matter because the tension is resolved in an unrealistic way and they get married in a rich relative's backyard in the Hamptons. And I think it's utterly predictable. And I think that we think God is like a romantic comedy, basically. Utterly predictable. And yet the book of Job just explodes that view of God. What I mean is, I I don't know, in those first couple of chapters when God accepted the wager with Satan, it seemed clear to me that he was taking a real risk on Job. Did you think that? The outstanding righteousness of Job had not only caught the attention of God, who's very proud of him, but also caught the attention of Satan, who accused Job of following him just for what he could get out of it, you know, protection and blessing from God. And here's what I think would happen. I would naturally expect God to turn to Satan, the great accuser, tell him off, give him an earful, to tell him in no uncertain terms that Job fears God, not for what he can get out of it, but because that's what a righteous man does, full stop, or period, as the Americans say. You would expect God to just banish the mischief maker from his very presence. That's what we would predict. So I think it comes as a surprise to us that God even entertains a conversation with Satan, and even more of a surprise that God would put his whole reputation in the universe, his whole way of doing things on the line by testing Job's response to suffering. I mean, God's entire way of operating in the cosmos is on view and on the line. You think, what if Job mucks it up? Would you back yourself if you were in his situation? seems to me God takes a big risk on Job's reaction to pain. And of course, the risk is even bigger when we realize that Job doesn't, he doesn't really know what's going on up there. He doesn't know what's going on in the heavenly council. He's got no idea that God's integrity is up for grabs, not just his own, but God's integrity, and that it all depends on his reaction. seems to me that God takes a big risk on Job, and I think that's quite surprising. Uh, yet there is more. We learned in the first week, didn't we, that there's, uh, God doesn't govern our world with that strict law of reward and punishment, which says if you suffer, it's because you sinned automatically, mathematically, kind of scientifically like that. That was the mistake that Job's friends had made. God's government of the world is not that simplistic. It's not that basic. His ways are above our ways. But God is actually so wild and imaginative unpredictability into creation, I think. And if you actually take the time to slow down and stop and look, you can see the creation is just completely unexpected and it's surprising. I mean, not even a child who exercises her wildest imagination could come up with a creature as unusual in its design as a giraffe. That is what I think. I mean, look at it. You ever seen the way that it moves? It is both bizarre and captivating. And man, I I love going to the zoo. And I think, um, don't wait for having kids or having grandchildren to go to the zoo. Just go. 
And uh, when it was still there, I would just stare at the rhinoceros for as long as I could get away with, um, just staring into the deep pools of its black eyes and just gazing at the prehistoric way that it moves. Wonderful. Or the elephant. I mean, just think of the elephant now. <laughs> what a wonderful and unusual thing that is. I was reading some time ago one of those new atheists, and uh, he suggested that the giraffe was kind of the great argument of why there simply could not be such a thing as an intelligent designer of the universe. And his argument was that God couldn't possibly exist as creator because the neural system of the giraffe was inefficient on account of it having such a long neck. And I thought, inefficient? That's a killer argument. Inefficient. Who cares if it's inefficient? How is that even a factor when you see the hypnotizing way that that creature walks? Don't you think that there are bound to be creatures of the deep sea that humans will never ever discover? And you wonder, why are they there? And it's just because God likes them. God has sown, I think, unpredictability into creation. And that's, in fact, what he says in uh, Job chapter 39, which I hope you've got open there in front of you. Uh, Ben read from it. It's on page 532. And he looks at the ostrich of all things. And this is what God says. Wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, though they can't compare with the wings and the feathers of the stork. She lays her eggs on the ground and lets them warm in the sun, unmindful that a foot may crush them, that some wild animal may trample them. She treats her young harshly as if uh, they were not hers. And she cares not that her labor was in vain, for God did not endow her with wisdom or give her a share of good sense. But when she spreads her feathers to run, she laughs at the horse and the rider. Job, you see, for many chapters, he almost demanded that God acts flatly in his creation, um, particularly that he might be shown justice immediately, right here, right now. And in God's reply, it's almost as if he says that complexity and surprise and even unpredictability is part of the world he created. Look at the ostrich, for goodness sake. She's got fine wings, man, but she can't fly. And she goes to the trouble of laying her eggs, but she leaves them in the warm sand where other animals can trample them. She ain't that smart. In other words, but boy, she can run. And she mockingly laughs at the war horses when she overtakes them. Let me say, if you think you are bored with God because you think he acts stupefyingly and monotonously and dully, you need to see that he's sown unpredictability into creation. And I don't mean unpredictable in the sense that you never know whether you're going to get kind of kind God or cranky God that he might be kind of happy one day and then capricious the next in the way that some human fathers or mothers or just people can be volatile and uneven. I'm not saying that. There is a great evenness in his character that loves mercy and that tends towards compassion. And we're going to see that in just a moment. But I do mean that there is just a certain surprise in his world and in his ways. And don't you sense that even about his own great gospel message? I mean, think about it. If you were coming up with a plan where you wanted to kind of save humanity, deal with sin, demonstrate justice, 
would it ever in a million years involve sending your own perfect son, a part of your very being, clothed in mortal human flesh and bones to die for sinners and then to rise again? I put it to you that you and I would not come up with a plan like that. Or even further, his approach of entrusting the future of his kingdom and the gospel message on earth. I think that's a bit unusual. You see, he could have proclaimed it audibly from heaven. He's done that before, even in this book of Job. He could have sent fearsome angelic messengers. He's done that before. But instead he trusts the proclamation of the gospel, which humanly speaking is the only thing that guarantees his kingdom will be passed from generation to generation to people like you and me. I'm just saying that God is not predictable. I'm just saying that he's not boring despite what we think. And Job shows us that clearly. Another reason, uh, second reason for today, why we might get bored with God, is that we think he doesn't really care about all the ins and outs of our lives, but he does. We're tempted to think that he finds us boring or tedious amongst all the concerns on his plate. Therefore, if we are so uninteresting to him, we might as well be uninterested back. I think that's true sometimes. I had a friend who was a teacher at a school um, up on the North Shore and uh, he was telling me about some of his students who were boarders there. And these kids boarded at Warunga or wherever it was and their parents lived at Lane Cove in Chatswood and Roseville. Now, if you're the kind of person that never kind of heads west of Pitwater Road, they're all close together. That's all you need to know, okay? And uh, you think about it, there might be some good reasons why you live at Roseville and you send your kid to boarding school at Warunga, but at face value, what does that suggest to you? it suggests to me that those parents aren't particularly interested in their kids. Now, do you think if parents aren't interested enough in their kids to live with them, that the kids will soon lose interest in their parents? Probably. I think so. And I wonder if that's why sometimes we can lose interest in God, because we just think we're uninteresting to Him. What do you think? The book of Job shows us that that is just not true. I do want to acknowledge that sometimes God can appear silent and unavailable and unresponsive. There are some 35 chapters in this book of Job, by far and away the largest section of the book, where God seems silent. And you know, Job says in chapter 23, if I go to the east, it's not there. If I go to the west, I don't find him. When he's at work in the north, I don't see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse from him. Or in chapter 30, he, he says, I cry out to you, O God, but you don't answer. I stand up and you merely look at me. There is something of that impression of Job's which resonates with us. I want to say, though, that's just an impression. It's not the whole picture. And appearances can often be deceiving because God is at work in the circumstances of our lives, even when he appears to be silent and unavailable. Think about it at the big picture, cosmic level. Uh, God staked his own integrity, the whole way he operates in the cosmos, on the reaction of this one man. If we zoom in onto that man himself, God is drawing him closer to himself, and he is teaching him about who he really is. Job's relationship with God is richer, and it's deeper, and it's sweeter 
on account of his longing and yearning and waiting. It really is. God may well appear silent and unavailable at certain times. does not mean he's disinterested in you. That's just an impression or an appearance. And it's not the whole picture. And that is precisely what we see from God when he breaks his silence in chapter 38. For four chapters, 38, 39, 40, 41, he speaks to Job quite ferociously out of a storm, a whirlwind, a hurricane. And in some ways it seems like he's getting a real lashing from God. But I think really Job is being given an invitation to continue to walk with him, to trust him, to love him, maybe to get to know him better again. And moreover, what God actually says convinces us that he is interested in our lives. Uh, Let's pick it up from chapter 38, verse 39. It's the same page that you have open there. Chapter 38, verse 39. God says to Job, Do you hunt the prey for the lioness, satisfy the hunger of the lions? They crouch in their dens or lie in wait in a thicket. Who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God and wander about for lack of food? Is that you, Job? Of course he remains speechless. What's he going to say? Obviously he doesn't satisfy the hunger of the lions or the ravens or count down the months until the deer gives birth to her young. The point is that God does, man. He cares for the animals, even the wild animals. And you know what? Sometimes there's mess and there's blood involved in that too. Do you not think, Job, that if he cares for the animals, messy though it might be, that he just could care for you? Do you not think, brothers or sisters, that he just might care for us? I mean, isn't that basically the same argument the Lord Jesus uses in Matthew 6? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, reap, store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Of course God cares for us. Of course he does. Really am keen to show... Uh, you this morning that God is not disinterested in you and that that's not a good enough reason to grow bored with God and start your own religion and I want to I want us to see that rather than him being disinterested he delights in his servants he delights in those who trust and love his son and he will right the wrongs and that's certainly the case for the main man Job you'll remember that God is so proud of him in those opening two chapters he's like the father of a newborn baby keen to show him off to anyone who takes an interest uh, there's um, certain stages in life and you know what, even maybe even coming to the 10 o'clock service could be like this for you where you just sort of feel there are babies everywhere you might feel that they just seem to be popping out everywhere and then they start to control your social life maybe your whole life it's controlled by the needs of infants and you find that you don't go out at night anymore you go out for brunch you think what is brunch it's not a meal it's just two words that are kind of jammed together isn't it of course there are many adorable babies like little Sana. And uh, let's be honest, folks, there are some that, uh, well, adorable is not the first word that comes to mind, is it? I like this nephew. He's a very fun little guy, lovely little fella, but he's just got a head which is enormous. I mean, it's giant. And uh, you look at his legs, and you look at his body, and then you look at his neck. Then you look at his head, and you think, my goodness, how does it hold it all up? It's like a bowling ball. I mean, it's a very happy bowling ball, but still a bowling ball. Now, um, we've got to keep this a secret between you and me because I can't have his parents finding out because regardless, his dad is completely delighted in him. 
as indeed he should be. Proud dads ought to be delighted in their little ones, and that's exactly what God is in relation to Job. Of course, we're not talking about a baby with a big melon. Uh, Job is blameless and upright. But to God, he's not just Job, you know. Remember at the start what God calls him? My servant Job. What a position of honour to be called a personal servant of the living God. Well, that is what Job is, the personal servant of the living God in whom God delights. And after the long chapters of silence and after God questions Job from out of the storm in 38 to 41, Job is once again in chapter 42, my servant Job to God. He's given the honourable task of praying on behalf of those three friends that said silly things about God. Job is one in whom God delights, despite the seeming silence from God. And it is true that far from finding you disinteresting, God delights in you. That is to say, if you are one of his servants, if you're someone who loves and trusts in his son Jesus, particularly in his life, death and resurrection for you, then God delights in you. Now, I can't say the same thing if you don't love and trust his son, and that would be something worth investigating today as a matter of urgency. But if you do trust in his son, God delights in you, even if you think you're hopelessly unattractive. You know, I cannot think of a place in the New Testament that describes those of us who trust in his son Jesus as sinners. Can't find a place. We are referred to rather as God's adopted children, not because of anything we've done, as God's sons and daughters, not because we're great, as his heirs, brothers and sisters in Christ, co-heirs with Christ, saints no less. wonder how often as Christians we think of ourselves as saints and as his servants, just as Job was. wonder if we ever think of ourselves like that. It's also true that God is careful to right the wrongs that happen to people in whom he delights. You see that in the very last part of the book, that that God does right the wrongs. Uh, It says in chapter 42, the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He's given uh, more animals than before. He has children again, his daughters, who received an inheritance which was striking in that day and age. They were the most beautiful in the land, it says, and they were given names that resembled fragrances as if they were quite literally the first Spice Girls. And he lived to see him to the fourth generation where he died old and full of years. It's an Old Testament way of saying the wrongs have been righted here. Of course, God may not right all the wrongs in this life. Uh, Some churches promise you that, don't they? Financial healing, physical healing, relational healing. If you could just see it, you can have it. If you name it, it's yours in Jesus' name and, you know, they just make promises that they really ought not to make and they just make promises that the scriptures don't quite make. You'll remember that Jesus, in a prediction about him, some 700 years before he was born in Isaiah 42, he was described as a servant in whom God delights and you will know that Jesus went to his death, was murdered at the hands of evil men. You'll remember that among his final words, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, they're the kind of words you'd expect Job to say. But the wrong of his murder was only righted by his resurrection from the dead and his exaltation to the right hand of God, where he continues to rule our world by his word. So the wrongs will be righted, yes. 
Sometimes that might be in this lifetime like it was for Job, and other times not until we too are raised from the dead like Jesus into eternal glory. But that is what God thinks of those who love him, servants in whom he delights, for whom he will ensure that the wrongs are righted. You're bored with God? That's the question we started with. If you think you might be, what are you going to do about that? Hit the golf course? Stay in bed? Start your own religion? Maybe get to know him better. Maybe today is a good day to start to get to know God better if you don't know him at all. Far from being boring, I think he's just wonderfully surprising in how he makes, made this world, how he operates within it, what he entrusts to us, even the good news about Jesus. Who'd have thought all those things? Far from being disinterested, he cares for us, he cares about us, sons, saints, servants. And like Job and like Jesus, he even delights in us and will ensure that our wrongs shall be righted, maybe in this life, but certainly in the next. Now that is just a a small bit of what Job says about God. And I think it's anything but boring. Why don't you join with me in prayer? Heavenly Father God, we do thank you for this book of Job. In some ways it explodes our view of you. We confess that at times we do think we've just figured you all out and and put you in a little box, neatly contained. Forgive us for that and help us to draw near to you when when we recognize that you are surprising and imaginative and when we realize that far from being disinterested in us, uh, you delight in us and you care about the ins and outs of our lives. And these prayers we commit into your hands that we might love you more and be more like your son Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Got a chance now to respond by singing. This, of course, is our offertory song. So regulars, you know what to do when the bags come around. And if you're a visitor, feel free to pop one of those connect cards in. Stand and sing.